Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. This conversation was recorded through a program at the Portsmouth Athenaeum. Because of an unstable internet connection, there was a lower audio quality and an occasional dropout. I found a line of driftwood in the Turtle Point Press catalog, and it was the design on the cover that attracted my attention. Turtle Point is a small independent press that not only promotes literature of classic and contemporary writers, but also emerging and neglected authors, revealing lives that are usually not seen in books that are playful, poignant, and poetic. So now let me introduce Diane Glancy, who is a poet, a novelist, an essayist, a playwright, and professor emeritus at McAllister College. Her book, Pushing the Bear, a Novel of Betrayal, is considered one of the important books to read when you're looking at the Native American literature. I had a chance to read that after, after I read A Line of Driftwood. So, Diane, before we begin talking about Ada Blackjack, the young woman who now lives in, in my heart and I, and I know in your heart, and <laughs> to discover your identity and your writing voice. Well, I always knew that I was mixed blood. My mother was German and English, and my father had Native heritage, among other heritages. And I am one of many with Native heritage, but not citizenship. There's a controversy going on now about who can be Native and who cannot. But not everyone's great-grandparents stood in line to sign the Dawes Rolls, which determined citizenship. I've written for a long time, and I have many books, and many of them have to deal with silence, including Ada Blackjack, though she had a diary. There was so much silence in that diary of what she was really like as a human being. As I said from the very beginning of the Pushing the Bear, which you mentioned, the 1838 to 39 Cherokee removal trail, and then I wrote about Sacagawea, who's no, who had no words recorded, the 1804 to 1806 uh, Lewis and Clark expedition. And then I have a book about Kateri Tekikwitha, a 17th century Mohawk converted by the Jesuits. So I always think, what was it like in history? In the dictionary, I looked up silence. That silence means without sound. It is a definition of what it is not. But what is the essence of silence? And that I'm always so drawn to these characters who did not have a chance to speak. I wrote this because it was a chance to explore. So I want to stay on track here. Silence. What came to mind when I was doing some free thinking over silence was silo. Visiting my parents' grandparents' farm in my early life, there was silence on the Kansas farm, except for wind. And there was a small silo by the barn, a cylindrical structure for storage. Silence also is a storage vessel. It produces silage. Fermented grain for livestock. A fermentation happens in silence. 
And I've lived alone for a long, long time, and I can go for a whole day without talking, sometimes even more than one day. For me, silence is the silo in which my thoughts compress to see what will rise. In this case, it was Ada Blackjack, her inability to be an autonomous being with a will, a mind, and an ability to say who she was. It has been my own struggle. And as I was writing in the shelter in place of COVID, I felt Ada's isolation on Wrangell Island in the Arctic Sea. I felt this mashup of Ada's story and my interpretation of her story, trying to fill in the places that I felt were missing. And my travels are in the book and my commentary on ventriloquism and even cannibalism. I do not write all these voices without feeling a sense of transgression. Who am I to go in and say what these people were thinking, what they were feeling, what their soul was like? But nonetheless, year after year, I keep on doing the same thing. Silo, by the way, is also an underground structure out in North and South Dakota where missiles, long-range missiles, are stored. So there was a lot at stake. It was a very deep word. Thinking about silence, it's what I need. That and travel. I love to get in my car and drive across the prairie. I did that with Sacagawea. I love to be in my car. I drove to upstate New York when I was writing about Kateri Tekikwitha. There's something about land that carries memory. There's something about driving across the land when you've done a little research on history and these characters that you are writing about who did not leave hardly any information about themselves. So it's been that way for many years. Uh, that's the way I work. Wonderful. Let me put this in context. We're going to talk about, you're going to talk a little more about who Ada Blackjack was and how her diary ended up in the Special Collections Library at Dartmouth College. The man who organized the expedition was a man named Stephenson. He was, one of, he was an explorer. He was one of the early presidents of the Explorers Club in New York. And he organized an expedition to Wrangell Island in 1914. There were 22 men on a ship. It was clear there was an accident, something happened. Only 11 men of the 22 survived. And he was on that expedition. He was one of the survivors. So as you can imagine, when he returned, there was a lot of anger against him because of from the family of the men who died and also from the public that he had let this go so terribly wrong. So he planned another expedition. And this was in 1921. And he hired four inexperienced explorers. Three were American and one was Canadian. The Americans were Frederick Maurer, Lorne Knight, Milton Gale, and the Canadian was Alan Crawford. And then they brought along this young woman named Ada Blackjack, who was hired as the seamstress and the cook. And she uh, had no money. She had put her son in a mission school and adoption agency or place with the idea that they would pay her. And when she came back, she would have the money to care for him. So that's kind of where, where it all started. And Diane, one other point, you write, the men were going to claim Wrangell Island, but the land claimed them. That was their discovery. 
it was another lesson on Wrangell Island. So now I turn it to you to tell us about Ada. It's easiest just to read from the very beginning of the book, Ada Blackjack, 1898 to 1983, Anupiat, the only survivor of a 1921 to 23 expedition to Wrangell Island in the Arctic Ocean. Ada Blackjack went as a seamstress with four explorers to Wrangell Island, September 1921, after rations ran out and the supply ship could not arrive because of ice. The team was unable to kill enough game on the island to survive. Three of the men tried to cross 200 miles of the frozen sea to Siberia for help, and they were never seen again. The fourth explorer was too ill to travel because of scurvy. When he died, Ada kept his frozen body in his deerskin sleeping bag. She was alone two months before the rescue ship arrived, August 1923. Ada is buried in Anchorage. She lived to be 85. And as Elizabeth said, these people were very young. She was, I think she was 23 when she went, and so were two of the explorers. I think it was Mr. Knight that was a little bit older. I held Ada's diary in the Renauer collection at Dartmouth College. She wrote of daily activities, but underneath was the voice of her journey, along with the actual events. And she um, learned to write in the Methodist mission. After her father died, her mother could not afford to feed her, to keep her, so they gave her to a Methodist mission. And there she began to write. As I got into this and I felt the upheaval, you know, ice is always moving and shifting, and I felt that in the bedrock of this book. I have here notes to myself to keep going. Always in the middle of some creative project, it seems to come to an end, and I don't know where to turn or where to go. So I always make notes to myself to keep going. It is Arctic exploration from a woman's point of view. It is written for the 100th anniversary of the expedition. It is positive report of a residential school attendance. And as you know, residential schools, Indian residential schools in Canada, and it will be more in America, are taking quite a hit because they're uncovering bones of the children who died during these experiences. And I think it's up to 10,000. Uh, in Canada. That is the record. When Ada's mother could not care for her, there was a place Ada could go. The Methodist mission taught Ada to write. It gave her an intersection of time and place that would carry her to the boat that came to rescue her from Wrangell Island. It taught her to believe when there was nothing to hold on to. As I wrote those words, I could almost feel the rhythm shifting like these flows of ice in the bay, crunching against one another. It was very, very interesting. You've written this beautiful poetry. In the book, there's a facsimile of the diary. And you wrote a paper called A Book of Disruption and Departure, where you say that poetry is a departure of one's comfort, to look into the crevices, to step into them, to walk the rack lines of thought, to receive criticism or put downs. You can't do that. But the first voice of poetry after the silence is asking, it is inquiry into the mystery. I interviewed Kyle uh, Dacunian, who's the director of the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church. When we were talking, we, we talked about disorganized orientation. 
key into disorganized orientation because I believe that's what poetry does and is and comes from. We all live in different relationships to language, so they're tethered to function and legibility and value and relevance. Poetry writes all of that aside and asks what's underneath the sediment of daily language. There's something kind of psychic and chaotic and possible that poetry achieves. Yes, that's so very true. And I actually experienced that in real life. I had been up in Wyoming for a conference at the Episcopal Church. And on my way home, a a stone from a passing truck or something must have hit my windshield. And I watched a crack go from the left side of my windshield up and out. And it separated by a little bit the, the landscape. So there was a hill and the rest of the hill was here. And the road was here and the rest of the road was here. And I thought, that's poetry. It separates. It's a crack through our experience that divides that divides reality, that divides perception. And then another time I had been in another place and I was flying home. It was actually in New York City. And there was road construction right outside the hotel by La Guardia, and I could not sleep all night long. I mean, even the fixtures on the wall were rattling. There were trucks backing up, men yelling, these road graders. I guess the only time they could work at night. So the next morning, I was on the plane, and I could feel sleep coming, and I started to dream. And then I opened my eyes, and I was on the plane. And it's that conscious and subconscious that we are so made of that that I that I had that experience again. Oh, this is how I can explain poetry, this division, and you, which you just said, Elizabeth, so beautifully. It's interesting. As Ada was brought up in a Methodist mission, she writes a lot about believing in Jesus. This is, how, this is what kept her going. And I thought about uh, the Japanese writer Saseku Endo in his book, Silence. And one of the questions that comes up in that book is, how does one cling to Christ amidst suffering and the silence of God? I think in the book, I say, when she was alone on the island, especially toward the end, when she thought she was not going to survive, the word Jesus appears over and over and over. So she did go back and rely on that faith from her from her mission. Methodist Mission School experience. And also, I've had a strong Christian faith. As I said, I've been on my own for 40 years, and that takes a lot of faith. And to write, to have a project come down upon you and have to get through it, it it just, I couldn't do it on my own. And besides that, I live in the Bible Belt. Remember I-35 right up and down the middle of America, which is uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas. Uh, it's not called the Bible Belt for nothing. There are churches on every corner. So it's been quite an important part of my life. But it's something that you really can't talk about in academia. They think you're not quite developed enough if you have faith in Christ. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be away from all of that. But it's been very fundamental in my life. I always found that life was bigger than me, as Ada did, too, when she was on Wrangell Island and in her life, too. I wish she'd have kept up her diary so I would have known the loneliness that she felt. And how did she get along after that? You know, Meriwether Lewis, when he was on his great expedition, 
to find what was there west of the Mississippi. Once he returned, he could not really return to normal life, and he died sometime later, whether by suicide or someone murdered him. There was quite a bit of disagreement over money spent on the expedition. But I wondered if Ada had any, if she would dream about it or if she had any PTSD over that, because it was quite a horrific experience. Even when the men were alive, they they did not want her around them as she was eating their food. And so she was always been an outsider. She had always been excluded uh, from normal life, as many natives were in, in Nome and Anchorage. Many of them drank and would be asleep on the street. So I just, I've really wondered about her later life. I'm not so curious that I'm going to write anything about it, but I think it must have been a very lonely and discouraging life. And, well, you know, it's interesting, Diane, because in, in January of 2020, kind of on the, on the cusp of February, so this was just a few weeks when the world shut down for the pandemic, I happened to be in London, and I was in the, the Royal Institute of Architects, has this wonderful little bookshop, and I found this small book called Silence in the Age of Noise, and it was written by a man named Erling Kagan, mm-hmm. who was a Norwegian explorer. And he spent 50 days walking solo in the Antarctica with his radio broken. And he says that he notes that one of the difficulties when he finally reached his destination was speaking again. The first time he had to use his voice. And he writes that the silence adhered to him, having no contact with the outside world, isolated and alone, forced to to ponder his inner thoughts. And I wondered if that's why Ada had difficulty communicating. Once you've been able to go into yourself to that extent, because not in such a barren environment, um, that it's hard to speak. It's hard to understand how to convey this to other people. I think she probably was concerned in her conversation with, do you have a job I could do? Probably walking into a shop or an inn or something or a restaurant. Could I wash dishes? You know, I think there was also a physical problem. How do you find pencil and paper on which to write? I don't think she even had that. How do you find the time if you're scrambling for to earn a living? It takes a lot. You need your own place, to your, a room of your own in which to write and work and Maybe she had that problem, too. Maybe she lost interest. What do I have to say? She did not understand herself as an autonomous human being with the right to speak. She does write in the diary because we have just her daily activities. She went out to hunt or she went out to send traps or she went out to do this or she tried to shoot a bird or these things that she'd never done. And you write. Breath is nothing more than thread that follows a needle through a piece of hide or cloth. But we do learn that she did this needlework. She did this beading. She worked on things for her Parker or that she had something that she could do with her hands. You know, my grandmother was a quilter and toward the end of her life, when she was hardly conscious anymore, her hand would go like that. Uh, that that sewing that need to do something with your hands. I want to read just a brief excerpt from her diary. April 27th, it's wind blowing hard today. 
I didn't do anything today. I wasn't feeling well, which she spells E-L-L. You know, her spelling was off too a lot. April 28, still blowing hard all day today. I stay in my sleeping bag. And yesterday, because, and there are some letters here that don't make sense, not feeling well, I do nothing but read Bible. April 29, still blowing. I didn't go out. And I might, I and might are connected as one word. Said, S-I-A-D, he was pretty sick. And she's talking about Mr. Knight over there in his deerskin sleeping bag before he died. And I didn't say nothing because I have H-A-B-O, nothing to say. And he got mad and he went through a book at me just because I have nothing to say to him. And I didn't say nothing to him. And before I went in my sleeping bag, I fell his water cup and went to bed. A scurvy is a very difficult death. And I have a few pieces in here about it. She would find a tooth in his hair. You know, you lose your teeth, your skin begins to become not skin anymore. And so, and when you read this diary that that she wrote, I could feel underneath a voice that wanted out. I could feel something there that she didn't know how to say. Am I worthy to speak of myself as an individual? You know, native is very community oriented. It's not the individual, it's the group, which is important. And then and then she made that little calendar. She made little boxes that she checked off. They're just again, these are your words, your your poetry. I made a little calendar book for 1923. I cut typing paper into pages and drew boxes for each day of the month. I marked them off when they passed. I looked at the days I had marked off. They flew away as birds. I am not alone. I have a diary. I am not alone. Vic the cat is with me. Those are the thoughts that I picked up from her diary. Those are the thoughts I think were going through her head, which she didn't know how to write poetry. She was down to daily activities, and she did very well to get all of those down. I wanted to read a few words from the beginning. On the table at the at uh, the Ranauer collections at Dartmouth College, they brought out all her belongings, filled a whole table. The little calendar was so cute. It was like little bird wings there and the different pictures. And as I was going through them, a word kept coming through my mind, and that word was horse meat. And I thought, that's irrelevant, that's stupid, was really my thought. Uh, but I've written long enough that I know words present themselves to you, to come and stand before you. So I wrote that down on my notes in the ran hour. And then later, as I began to, to write, the whole book opens, they ate me like horse meat. Yet I survived. A horse is not an Arctic animal, neither were they. I was marooned on an island with four explorers, Alan Crawford, Lauren Knight, Fred Marr, Milton Gall. I went to a shaman before we left Nome. There was death and danger ahead for the expedition. We departed on a boat September 10th, 1921, and arrived at Wrangell Island in the Arctic Ocean September 16th. The men raised a flag and claimed the island. We unloaded supplies on the black gravel shore. It looked large to me, but the men said it was small. I thought at first I would turn back, but I was a seamstress who spoke English. I learned to write in the Methodist mission. What is written is what lasts. The letters of the alphabet are an elk herd. 
the branching of antlers, the curve of belly, the knot of hooves, the straight lines of legs for other letters. I was not alone on the island. The ice was with me. The cold was with me. The expedition cat, Victoria, was with me. There were no trees on Wrangell Island, but there were piles of driftwood on the shore. The men hauled driftwood to make a woodpile for winter. I sewed snow shirts for the men. We brought reindeer skin parkas. Had to do was fasten the shirts to the parkas. I was sorry I came on the expedition. I felt stranded with the men when the boat left on the island. The missionary said I would not be alone. I had Jesus. But I had married Jack Blackjack, and he deserted me. Now I loved Alan Crawford. I followed him around the camp. The men teased him. They laughed. I was an outcast. I had crying spells. I missed my son Bennett and my sister. I wanted to be with Crawford. I thought he would marry me. The men were together in a group. I was by myself. The men made camp for me further away from Crawford. I walked to his tent. He would not let me in. Minus 40 degrees. Four days we were confined to our tents. Victoria the cat crept around the camp. At night, she found a sleeping bag to crawl into. I like writing words on paper. It is similar to sewing. Each letter I write is a stitch. I kept a journal with my ever-sharp pencil. Some days I sewed. Some days I wrote in my journal. Sometimes I could not tell the difference between sewing and writing. The polar lights prowled like polar bears. The men watched the lights. What good were they? We could not hunt the lights. We could not eat them. We passed into days of darkness when everything was the same. I didn't know if it was day or night or what night or day it was. I held up my hand, asking the polar lights to take me with them. Desperation slipped into sleep with me. I repaired parkas. I repaired boots. In the distance, the driftwood looked like stitches someone had taken in the snow. I was afraid of Lorne Knight. He grumbled, grumbled like a walrus. Whenever I came near their camp, he bundled me up, strapped me to the sled, and took me back to my tent. I screamed at him. What do you do, Ada, he asked, but eat our food. The next morning, I walked to Crawford's tent again. I heard the men playing cards. I walked back to my camp. I refused to pair, repair another pair of boots. When I came back to their camp, Lorne Knight tied me to the flagpole. Until I said I would work, he left me tied to the pole a long time. I started howling and he let me go and I returned to my tent. Mr. Knight told me to make mittens and skin socks and scrape deerskin while he trapped, but I did nothing. He said if I didn't work, I wouldn't eat. Mr. Knight got his Bible and read to me. It reminded me of the mission school. The men didn't want me. I could die and they would be relieved. I would go back to Nome on the first supply ship that came, let them sew their own clothes. I stopped following Crawford. I was useless as a horse. I learned to think of myself as others saw me. It was my first lesson on Wrangell Island. Uh, it's, it's just so beautiful. She speaks a few times in her diary about the northern, the northern lights. And I've traveled to the northern the northernmost point of Norway. <laughs> and on a very cold winter night, when it's pitch black, have experienced out in, in that sort of setting. It's something that you don't forget. They just, 
they swirl around and, and they just kind of wrap you into them. And there must have been scenes for her that, that were very beautiful. The different shades of whiteness and when she'd walk and, and, and see a, a polar bear or things like this. But of course, she can't write about that because she's not writing at all about, about her feelings. She's only writing about this survival. I think she probably stood there with her mouth open looking at the northern lights, although she'd seen enough of them in Alaska. Maybe she was used to them, but she did not know how to write about beauty. Just like you said earlier, it was a term. How do you describe it and the movement of it? She was just at a loss and stayed away from talking about that. You know, I saw in the pictures that Tom was showing the dogs as they began to starve. They were feeding the dogs cornmeal because they had they wouldn't feed them meat because they were needed it for themselves. And some of the dogs began to die. So the three men who left for Siberia took their remaining dogs and and left. And I've always wondered what happened to those men. They either died on the ice and were eaten by polar bears or fell into the water and disappeared. But nobody ever uh, there's nothing recorded of any of the tribes, the migratory tribes up there of what could have happened to them. So, so many mysteries. So I, I will say to any of you who are in New Hampshire, you can call the Renau Library. I spent a morning going through these archives. I think that's why when you see them, when you touch them, when you, when you, you can hold this diary, I mean, they will bring it out for you. And yes. Diane said, they'll put it on the table and and you can just imagine, and then you have all these photographs. Um, and the reason they're at Dartmouth is that Stephenson, at the end of his career, went to Dartmouth and taught a course and then was involved in starting what's called the Cold Crowl, which is the Cold Regions Lab. So all of his all of his papers are there. And if you go to the Dartmouth Library site, you can look at their digitized collection and they have Arctic photographs. And if you if you look, if you search through the Arctic photographs, you will find all of these images. I've been in research libraries before and sometimes they make you wear gloves and they'll put a book on a little rack so that you can't touch it, but you can turn a page very carefully. But at the ran hour, they just brought it all out and set it on the table. And I had that little diary and the little calendar in my hand and and they freely sent me everything. And when they sent her diary, which is in this book, it was larger than the page that my computer could handle. And some of the words broke and were off-centered. And I just left it that way. And I had a library call me and say, you know, there's some mistakes in that book. I said, well, I meant that to, to, be, to be the way. I just wanted to leave it the way that the way that it was. I just wanted that fragmentation, that incompleteness, that this is all we have of Ada uh, that I could come up with. It is such a moral component to poetry. And I, I've just had a chance, Diane, to read. There's going to be a new edition of Frank X. Walker's book called mm -hmm. Buffalo about York and York was the slave or manservant of William Lewis and went on the William and Clark expedition, but was of course kind of erased from history. 
And Frank Walker is also a poet, an Appalachian poet, and he's written a poem about about York, kind of reimagining in much the same way. And, And I think of Marilyn Nelson writing about Emmett Till. I actually know Frank Walker, and we gave a reading a long time ago. I read from Sacagawea, and he read from York, who were both on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And it was quite interesting. He does the same kind of work, too. I'm always glad when I see those writers who want to fill in the missing parts of history and say, what was it like? I am going to take a risk. I am going to transgress and write a personal narrative. And um, I don't really have the right to do that. I feel kind of bad. I mean, would you want me, Elizabeth, coming into your house and writing your thoughts down? I don't think so. And it would be the same with a historical character. But there, I just feel this longing. Maybe because of my own experience with silence, I just feel this longing in characters that I come across. I don't really remember the first time I heard about Ada Blackjack. It must have been, I could have been looking on Facebook. I don't know. I could have picked up some literary journal, but there was that click. You know, it's these characters, they have cockleburs and you pass through history and this one will stick and that one will stick. And this one will stick. And that one you don't have time for. Just go away. And so I'm so glad I've had a a long life and a chance to do all these. Well, you know, I was also thinking of Robin Wall Kilmer's books, Braiding Sweetgrass. She talks even about the hunger moon when, when there were storms and people would leave to go, the men would leave to go hunting and then wouldn't come back because they were lost in the storm. But Ada never had the advantage of really being brought up in within her indigenous culture, did she? I mean, she she, no, she didn't wasn't she wasn't as familiar with nature as others might have been. She does make one note about riding on the sled with her father, and he died when she was eight years old. So she did have those very early years, but her major life from eight to 23 was in the mission school, the Methodist mission school, learning to write. And I'm sure they learned service duties, like how to be someone's maid, because that's what a lot of the schools uh, helped the Native children learn how to do so they could have jobs, so that they could live in this new world it is. So, but when she was there, in the Arctic, she had to learn. And I love the way she talked about learning to set a fox trap. She set it at first too deep. And then she finally caught a fox, but it was so thin, there was no meat to eat. And I think she made some broth for Lauren Knight in his deerskin sleeping bag when he was close to death. But she relearned and she learned how to shoot a gun. She was just, I guess we can do a lot of things when our survival depends upon it you know and of course we also look at her as a woman you know a woman who was she was the one who was managed to keep this together imagine what it was like being there now with this man dead in this sleeping bag frozen and yet she was able to to continue loved stories of Arctic expedition, the Shackleton adventures and all of that. I don't know why it keeps me very interested. And the old Chinese junkets that started out across the ocean, not knowing where they were going. 
through your life, you just pick up these interests that kind of stick with you. And that was one, whether on the Lewis and Clark expedition or, or whatever, I've always loved that and have written a lot about it. But that's poetry. That's, I mean, it's poetry that is exploration with words more than fiction or where there's an absolute narrative where you can go into, as you said, these crevices. You, you can, you know, you can go underneath and around and you can, it's in your words, the arrival of the unforeseen. The experiences with silos in which there's fermentation of grain. That's also what writing is. You have these ideas and they somehow ferment and come out something very different. I could read a few more words. That would be lovely, Diane. All that fall, the men hunted and came back with little. I put the few hides on stretchers, seal skin, fox skin. I found a calendar book for 1922. I marked off the days. Summer was gone. The clouds shut the sun in their little ice house. I saw a raven in the sky. Its outstretched wings made a slice into the horizon. One day I pecked once on Gall's typewriter and did not do it again. Milton Gall's typing sounded like a raven squawking, walk, walk, walk. I listened to the letters separate from their words. Victoria the cat went outside when Gall typed. By afternoon, there was wind and blowing snow. We spent days in our tents. Winter lasted into the summer. Fierce winds, cold temperatures. We hauled driftwood. We rationed food. We looked into the bay with the field grasses, glasses. We knew a boat would arrive, but a supply ship did not arrive. If only we could eat driftwood. We looked out into the bay. We tried to hide our disappointment. The geese came. The geese went. Everything that could move seemed to migrate away from Wrangell Island except the ice. The men shot a walrus. It took more effort to cut and haul the parts of it back to camp than the men could make. They were starving. I cooked for them. They complained of the sameness of every meal. I found roots. I boiled them. I fried them. I cooked them with cocoa. Alan Crawford drew maps. Milton Gall had an abscess tooth. I am not alone. I have writing. I have the polar lights. They move across the sky as though they were writing. Thank you very much. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.